look, um, there was something I, I, I quickly want to chuck in before we get to the sermon. Actually, two things. One is, to add to what Rich said, thank you for sharing your testimony this morning, Darren. Um, I, yeah, sent out the email to the guys who are currently going through membership and just said, hey, would you guys be interested in sharing yours at, at church? And I was delighted that all of them replied with, yes, yeah, we'd love to. Uh, and so, well, not those exact words, but, uh, but they all said yes. And, and so, like, um, yeah, like, I don't know, I just... As the pastor of this church who gets to read everyone's membership stuff when people apply for membership at Gospel Church, it's such a blessing for me to get to read those testimonies and see the way that God's been at work in people's lives. Um, and and I, I'm so glad to be able to share that with you all as, as we go over the next few months and, and as people share their testimonies. And I wanted to chuck in there a little invitation that if you're one of the people who went through our first round of membership process, we never got round to doing this part of it, uh, the, the sharing your testimony publicly. It wasn't, it's not a required part of the process at any point. Um, we, do, we do circulate people's testimonies to the existing members so that they can say yes and amen. We believe that this person is a Christian as we bring them into membership. Um, but I think there's just such power in sharing the story of how Jesus has been at work in your life. And so if you were one of the people who went through the first round of that and you're hearing this happening and you're going, gosh, John never gave me that chance. Uh, here's your chance. Come and talk to me. Uh, and we'll, we'll add you to the end of the list. And we'll just do testimonies through December. It'll be great. Um, I, I, maybe not through December. We might not have enough of that. But I can't count the number of weeks right now. Um, there's one other slightly less happy-go-lucky thing to say, uh, which is just, just reflecting on our prayer time um, before. I felt like I probably should say that it's not the position of this church that national Israel are still the covenant people of God. Uh, we don't have a yes or no to that. I'm not saying that's a position we're directly opposed to. We're not against it. Um, it's not my position personally. Uh, the covenant people of God are, in my view, those who have believed in Jesus uh, now, no matter which nation they are in. And so, for instance, uh, in the current conflict, which is a significant and heartbreaking conflict, uh, which you may take sides in for all manner of reasons, uh, my one of my greatest heartbreaks in it is that Christians are persecuted and killed on both sides of a border. Um, uh, I just wanted to be clear there. It, it's okay to disagree with me on that, um, uh, with, with others on that. There are other legitimate Christian positions, um, but just uh, reflecting on our prayer time, I wanted to make it clear. So, so if, you're, um, if you're someone who, who hears that and goes, oh my goodness, John's a heretic, I have questions about this. Or if you just have questions about it in general, please come and have a talk to me about it afterwards. We're not going to sink our entire sermon time into this, uh, but I just thought I should chuck it in there um, because uh, I don't know about you. Some of us may have felt a tension with the prayer time of saying amen to the end of something. Um, uh, and on that, let's pray as we come into God's word. Okay. Jesus, thank you, uh, thank you that you are such a good, persistent, gracious, self-giving saviour. Thank you that you went to the cross for us, and Lord, thank you before the cross, you went to this, this garden, you went to the Mount of Olives for us, um, and you kept going towards the cross. We pray, Lord, that today, as I preach this word, that you would lift up yourself, that you would be seen clearly in the glory that we see in your word and that we would come to know you more, that we would be dumbfounded by the, the wondrous love of our Saviour, dumbfounded by the glorious love of his Father 
by his will to save us. Lord, we pray that you would be leading us to be a people more like Jesus as we see him, as we see our God more clearly. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as, as you may have guessed by the Bible reading, we are going on in our series uh, in Luke, the Limitless Gospel. Today, uh, it's reaching its final climactic moments for us. We have five weeks left in this series, uh, which we began um, going, out, going on in uh, about two years ago. Come, come October, it'll be two years ago. Uh, we won't be going in it in October this year. Um, but if that feels to you like we've been reaching the end of, a, of an epic road that we've been walking down for a long time, that it's, that's all going to be over very soon, spare a thought for the disciples and for Jesus, because we've got nothing on them in this passage of Scripture. Uh, in this part of Luke, uh, like nowhere else in the book, actually, we see into the raw heart of Jesus as he is burdened beyond imagining and as his disciples reach the end of themselves as well. So as we step into this, uh, we, we read that Jesus and the disciples with him, they leave the upper room. So they've just had the, the Lord's table and, and, and they've just received the new feast uh, and they headed for the Mount of Olives. Uh, we know from back in, in chapter 21, verse 37, uh, that this was the place where Jesus and the disciples had been lodging uh, the time w while they'd been staying in Jerusalem. Uh, we can't say it for sure. Uh, this is just a fun note, I think. Uh, but the language implies that they were camping out, um, roughing it a bit. Don't know about you. I just love the fact that we see, and I, I haven't heard this emphasized before that much, but Jesus is such a country guy, you know? Uh, <laughs> He goes and stays in the city, and when he, at night, he leaves the city and he roughs it on the side of a mountain. Um, it's, it's the ancient equivalent of sleeping in the boot of your car, if, if that helps. Um, but tonight is different to the other nights when Jesus has lodged there. Uh, they get there, and in the garden, we see Jesus exposed like never before. He tells his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And it's amazing to note that even here, even in the deepest, kind of darkest night that he would experience, Jesus is looking out for them first. He's looking out for his people, for his disciples. He knows the coming hours and days will test them like never before because of how hard it will be for him. But he, he calls them uh, to their best defense. He says, pray. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray for help. I want to chuck a side note in here that's totally not what this passage is specifically talking about. Husbands, uh, side note. Th this is a, a, a good moment to remember when we get up to reading things like Ephesians chapter 5. And, and Paul says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus looks out for his, for his church in the big ways and in the small ways and at the cost of his own life and at the cost of going on towards the end of his own life uh, in this. And he, he's, he's caring for them even there. Coming back to our passage, because like I said, that's a side note. Jesus now goes a stone's throw from the disciples. And that's, that's significant because everything that Jesus does now would have been visible to them uh, and, and even probably audible to them, uh, depending on how far you can throw a stone, I suppose. Uh, but 
there's still the profound sense that Jesus is also alone in what he's doing here. Uh, Jesus, so Jesus goes and he prays. And what Jesus prays is remarkable. Uh, at every step in Luke's gospel so far, we've seen Jesus with the Father's direction in control. Uh, the king at every step, quite apparently. But now uh, his composure really changes. He kneels on the ground and he prays, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he goes on praying and, and we read that this situation is so intense that an angel comes down from heaven to strengthen him. And we read that he is in agony and that his sweat falls like great drops of blood. And that might just mean that he's sweating like a lot, like that it's flowing like blood from an open wound. Or it might mean that he's busting capillaries all over the place and, and that there's actually blood coming out through the sweat pores, glands. Apparently that can happen. Uh, but, but either way, as crazy as it is to say, what we're looking at here is a moment of profound fear and dread and near overwhelming for Jesus, our Savior. And the question then arises for us, why would Jesus be so shaken? You know, if you're a Christian, we hold that Jesus is God incarnate. Why would he be so overwhelmed? So much that Matthew and Mark's accounts of this moment tell us that he said that his soul was sorrowful even to the point of death. Literally, the sheer dread of the moment could have physically killed him. Like, what's going on here? And whilst there's a lot that we can say, I want to paint for you three increasing contrasts that we see illuminated, uh, that, that, that are in the Bible, right? And that illuminate what's going on here. Um, first, the eternally living one is going to die. In John's gospel, when Jesus claims to have seen Abraham and the, the uh, religious leaders are outraged and baffled and they say to him, hang on, you aren't even 50, wasn't even 40, and, and you say that you've seen Abraham, what's going on there? Jesus responds, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Re remember Abraham, like 1996 Abraham, sorry, 1996 BC Abraham? Just like, like roughly the same amount of time before Jesus as we are after him, if that helps give a bit of perspective there. And Jesus says he predates Abraham. More than that, that he is the great I am before Abraham. He claims divine life before Abraham. Go, go even further. Take what Paul says over in the letter to the Colossians. He says, by him, by Jesus that is, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So one who predates all other life, who is the source of all other life, the purpose of all other life and existence, and who is the sustaining power by which everything else holds together in every single moment. Without him, we are space dust, less than space dust, non-existent. And this one is going to die. 
And that is the least reason of three for why Jesus is sorrowful to the point of death and prays this prayer. Second reason, the sinless one will carry all of the sins of his people. He's going to carry the sin of the world. If you're a Christian, you have some experience, I expect, of what uh, the weight of sin feels like. If you're not, you probably do too. It's universal. What it feels like, also, if you're a Christian, you know what it feels like to have that removed and how much of a weight it was, you realise, once it's off, because you're like, well, I didn't realise how much of a rock I was carrying here. Have you ever had that moment of, of conviction or guilt over sin that felt like it would drown you, like it would overwhelm you, like you couldn't deal with the guilt of how you treated that person, how you failed that relationship, how you spoke to your wife or how you treated your kids or how you cheated on that test or how your actions led to someone else's downfall or whatever it is, you know. It can feel like drowning, can't it? David, I think, gives us this wonderful insight into how this feels, because I've related to this at points in my life. Psalm 32, David writes, When I kept silent, and the implication is when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as with the fevered heat of summer. Sin carried is sin that destroys you from the inside out. And that, that there is one man's experience of one instance of sin in one man's life. And he was accustomed to sin, as we all are to some extent, because it's not our first time, right? But as God himself, Jesus is perfect and holy. He is spotless. He has never sinned. And now we weigh that against this the holy sinlessness of God, we weigh against these words from 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him, that is God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or Isaiah 53.6, if you want, without the ba-ba-do-ba-bas, if you don't get what I'm saying, just keep going. Uh, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, Uh, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just reflect on that for a second. Of us all. The full weight of all of our sin. Not just the people in this room, but God's people throughout all of history poured into one man at one time as he goes to die on the cross. The sweat and the dread begin to make sense, don't they? But that's the, that's the second greatest reason that Jesus is sorrowful to the point of death. Thirdly, most terribly, Jesus, who was always and had always been in perfect relationship with God the Father, he's not just going to die and he's not just going to carry all sin, but he will carry all of the wrath of the Father against sin. He's going to carry our punishment. You know, Ephesians 2, I love Ephesians 2. Uh, I love the whole book of Ephesians. We might do it sometime soon as a series. But it presents about the most stark three words, I think, of the bad news for anyone who doesn't know Jesus. Paul says that outside of Jesus, we were by nature, and he says, children of wrath. 
That is, we sat under the righteous judgment of God because although we were created in his image, blessed among all of creation, we've all turned, we've all sinned, we've all acted not just against each other but against our creator as rebels and therefore condemnation is what awaited us. The eternal outpouring of, of what we rightly deserve is what awaited us. Eternal separation from the goodness of God and eternal experience of the full justice of God is what awaited us, rightly awaited us. And 1 John 2 verse 2 says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Here's what that means. Jesus carried all of the wrath of God for us. As we read in this passage, according to the Father's will. He chose for it to be poured out on him instead so that we wouldn't have to carry it. What we deserve poured out for all of eternity. Get your head around that. What, what we all did, all God's people from, from the first man, you know, over thousands of years, billions of lives, the destruction we deserve, described in Revelation as, as the lake of fire, that is the second death, is poured into Jesus in just one day. And un understand, like, the heightened exposure of that event. Because unlike we who are born into sin and broken relationship with God, Jesus is God the Son. For all eternity, he and the Father and the Spirit are one God. And that Son, who has lived in that perfect unity with the Father for all eternity, is going to carry the weight of the wrath of his Father for sin. Against a, a large armed mob and what does Jesus do does he call them you know does he call down the armies of heaven he say angels come down you know the angels already come and he's left D does he say now's the moment charge you know Braveheart style um haven't seen Braveheart so I don't know the exact wording uh, no in fact when Jesus disciples um one of them uh, actually uh, takes a last desperate plunge. He says, is this the time? And he grabs his sword and he cuts off the guy's ear and Jesus says, that's enough of that. And he heals the guy's ear. How do you lead a rebellion if the leader of your rebellion will heal the people that you're rebelling against? <laughs> and he rebukes the guy for cutting it off. He says, no more of this. They haven't gone outside. And he heals that wounded enemy. And, 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 and understand how defenseless the disciples must have felt here. You know, led by a man who will heal his enemies if they try to defeat, if, 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 his, if his comrades try to defeat them. It breaks the disciples. And, and seemingly um, putting the final nail in the coffin of their despair, uh, Jesus turns to the mob and he says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Darkness is going to have its way, he says. The enemies of Jesus will take him. The enemies of Jesus will kill him. And there's nothing the disciples can do about it. And although we haven't mentioned him today, uh, you've got to imagine now how Peter's feeling. 
who has been the most prominent disciple of Jesus, you've got to imagine that he's struggling with the promises that he's made. Because remember, uh, if, if you were with us last week or if you've read Luke's gospel before, when they were in the upper room earlier on the same evening, Jesus had said that they would all fall away. And what did Peter say? He said, uh, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I'm in this till the end, Jesus. Hear the pride in those words. Hear the mighty self-reliance in those words, the confidence. Hours earlier, he was so sure that if trials came, even prison, even his own death on the way to Jesus' reign, Peter was ready to fight and to die and to make it happen. But what does he do now? Um, what, what would you do now, right? He's watched as Jesus has seemingly buckled under the pressure on the mountain. He's prayed in agony, begging God for another path that didn't come. And Peter has, was so shaken that he slept for sorry, wept himself to sleep. And then he's watched Jesus uh, allow his own capture, even healed his enemy, rebuked the possibility of uprising. The Peter we find here is such a different guy to earlier in the night, right? Because he's beginning to understand where Jesus is actually headed here. So Peter, Peter tries, in his defense, to keep his word. As Jesus is carried away to the high priest's house, Peter follows along behind as inconspicuously as he can. Uh, and, and when they get there, he even goes into the courtyard. Like that, that, That's actually quite bold. Um, he goes into the courtyard. He, he's, he warms himself by the fire with the servants, trying his best to be inconspicuous. And he finds a place where he can even see Jesus. And maybe, maybe Jesus is in the house or maybe this is one of those kind of big Hellenistic houses with a big courtyard and, and he's just on the other side of the courtyard. As Peter is uh, questioned then by people who say that he was with Jesus, Peter is, is standing there watching what's happening. You know, he's watching Jesus being beaten, being mocked. Now, notice, we're not gonna, we, this is not our passage for today, but the next paragraph after our passage this week describes Jesus' captors blindfolding him and beating him and mocking him and saying, prophesy, who was it that hit you? <laughs> imagine, imagine how that would have affected you if you were Peter watching that as these people go, you know, weren't you with him? Aren't you a friend of the man that they're beating over now? Can you see what these questions mean for Peter? Weren't you with him? Shouldn't we be taking you to prison and to death with him? And Peter doesn't know what to do, so he denies it. He says, he, he lies outright. No, I don't know him. I have no idea what you're talking about. You people are crazy. I'm just here for the fire. Uh, <laughs> don't know what's going on here. And, and he denies it three times over, over hours, we read. He denies uh, Jesus and, and finally the rooster crows. And we read that in that moment, as Jesus is being beaten and perhaps he's, you know, we get the, the idea he's just about to have the blindfold pulled over his eyes here, right? Um, and in that moment, Jesus turns and looks at Peter. Eye contact is made, maybe, maybe just for a second. 
And although I can only imagine the compassion of Jesus in that moment, Peter only sees his own failure. He remembers this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. He said that Peter would fail, that he would deny Jesus, and here we are. And Peter, Peter reaches the end of himself. And he realizes he's just not enough. You know, Luke, um, in Luke 14, Jesus spoke some words that I think might have been ringing in Peter's ears just here. Um, he asked uh, two questions there about counting the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. He made these two comparisons to what it means to be his disciple and to count the cost. He said, which of you, <clears throat> which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and he's not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began, began to build and was not able to finish. <laughs> or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with, with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 men, with twice the army? And finally, Peter here, who's been so sure he was up to the task, that he had the resources, so self-sufficient, Finally, he actually stops and he counts the cost and he realizes, I don't have what it takes to pay this. He set out to build, to be Jesus' disciple, but discovered he couldn't get past the foundation. And, and our passage ends on those kind of shattered words. He went out and wept bitterly. I'm just going to say something that might seem deeply contradictory. Um, this is a moment of God's immense grace for Peter. Because you see, Jesus has, uh, sorry, Peter has been an avid follower of Jesus. But if you look at Peter's actions so far, kind of follow the trends there, it's clear Peter's been trusting in Peter to get him there. Peter needed to reach the end of himself in order to see that it wasn't himself that he needed. He needed resources. He needed power beyond what he had in himself. He needed his faith in himself to be crushed so that he could find faith in someone who was so much more than himself. And actually, that's, that's the point of that parable that I mentioned. Jesus, Jesus says, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether with 10,000 troops, he can defeat the king who has 20,000. And he continues on, and if not, while the other king is far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Peter has to realize he needs to stop relying on what's inside of him to get him there. He needs to find help from God, from the true king. And after Jesus died and rose, this Peter, who was so broken, would be rebuilt in the likeness of Jesus like never before. Peter would receive God's spirit at Pentecost, be filled with power. He would lead the Jerusalem church. The church as a whole actually would kind of look to Peter for leadership in its early stage. And eventually we get from early church history that Peter 
you know, he went to prison and he died for Jesus. Fearless. Because it wasn't about him anymore. It wasn't about whether he was up to the task. He had hope in his risen saviour. And he had God's spirit at work in him. And, and I want to close today with these two thoughts for us. Because if, if you haven't noticed, this speaks to us in a way. You might be going through a season right now where it feels like God is bringing you to the end of yourself. If you're not, listen up anyway, because those things hit. It will come. But if that is you, can I, can I suggest that God is doing for you here what he did for Peter. I want to suggest that as gently as I can. He's bringing you to the end of yourself so that you will come to trust in him more than you ever have. You know, if you've never put your trust in Jesus, then he's at work to bring you to saving faith in him. To take you from death to life. To lead you into what Jesus bought for you when he died. And carried your death, your sin, and your judgment. He's working to bring you into life. Or if you're someone who's already trusted in Jesus, you might think, well, sure, but, you know, I've already trusted in Jesus, John. Um, why, is, why, is, why is God letting this happen to me? Why is this happening to me? Uh, and I would gently suggest that he's leading you who have already trusted him to trust him more. Christian life isn't about trusting once and we're done. It's about being led to trust more and more. You know who wrote about this uh, later in his life? Peter wrote about this later in his life. Peter actually um, writes uh, um, in his first letter, First Peter, written to a whole uh, region of churches. He writes that trials are to our faith what fiery gets rid of the dross, it refines the good. Hard times are times to lean into God and to discover that he really can be trusted, that he really is perfectly good, that he's enough for me even when everything else falls away. Second closing thought here is that if you find yourself in that place, um, please know that Jesus isn't a distant saviour who sympathizes with your pain, but could never really walk in it himself. In, in every pain you go through, in every pain we all go through, he's gone through more than us. He's, he's carried it all and, and done so to redeem us. To rescue you. To one day bring you to his full presence where there will be no more mourning or crying or sorrow or pain where the former things will have passed away you know like that song we sung before just remember this if you're going through that season all our sickness all our sorrow jesus carried up the hill he's walked this path before us he's walking with us still we have a, a savior who knows our every pain a million and who has done something about our pain. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you that you bring tragedy 
agony in our lives we turn to faith because everything you've given us you turn for your glory and you use it for our good but I want to pray for anyone here who is currently in that dark night in that struggle of coming to the end of themselves I want to pray for your sustaining power that as they reach the end of themselves that they receive your goodness your sufficiency the ways that your body and blood Jesus lead us into a better hope and better certainty than what we could have trusted in before Lord we will all go through those seasons so I pray it for all of us that you would use the things in our lives the real struggles that we face you would use them for your glory and for our good I pray that you would lead us as a people who grow in faith with Jesus in every struggle and Lord help us to have a clear view of our Messiah who struggled for us and who's gone on to glory I pray it in Jesus name Amen We're going to have the chance now to reflect on that uh, on, on the suffering that our Saviour went through for us to rescue us uh, as we uh, go to the table and, and share in communion uh, in this meal we remember that Jesus' blood was poured out for you and me. Jesus' body was broken for you and me. That he chose to suffer for us and that by this we're saved. So I'd invite you to take time, uh, reflect on, on your own sin, on your own need of a saviour. We all do need one. Um, and then go take the bread, take the juice and remember that Jesus is the perfect saviour who rescued us. Please as you're able.